0: Nuclear Doomsday. There's a clock for that. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is the group that, every year, sets the Doomsday Clock to let us know how close humanity is to utterly destroying itself. We are currently at 100 seconds to endgame, meaning midnight, the same setting that it's been since 2020. But this year's clock was set in January, before Russia invaded Ukraine. And even with that, it is still the closest it has ever been set. So how is this harbinger of doom determined? We asked a woman who should and does know, and she told us. The
1: challenge that the board was focused on is what is this clock about? Is it about nuclear risk? Or is it about two questions that we ask ourselves every time we meet? Is humanity safer or at greater risk? this year than it was last year? And is humanity safer or at greater risk today compared to
0: the other times that we've asked that question? And given the last eight months that we've had, I'm certain we all have differing opinions about exactly where that clock should be set now. Well, when Rachel Bronson, president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, Goes into details of what it takes to determine how close humanity is to destroying itself and translate that into an image the entire world understands immediately upon seeing it. You see how close we are to that horrifying seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat,
2: what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Shrinking, but the activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat.
0: It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine, keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we revisit an interview with Rachel Bronson, president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. That's the group behind the annual setting of the Doomsday Clock. She explains the history of the clock, how its setting is determined, and why this visible image of our proximity to Armageddon matters. When it's over, we'll bring you up to date on the current setting of the clock in 2022 and what it's going to take to get the January setting re-examined in light of the February invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We will also have nuclear news from around the world. Linda Pence-Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. Numbnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than we will ever be able to learn from Liz Truss. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 25th, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in Ukraine, where there are two major stories. In the first. Ukraine's President Zelensky has accused Russia of planting mines along a key hydroelectric dam, the Kakovna Dam on the Dnipro River. Russia has countered by accusing Ukraine of wanting to blow the dam and mining it, but considering Russia has been on an ongoing campaign to destroy all infrastructure in Ukraine, Ukraine has nothing to gain by the destruction of the dam which would flood more than 80 settlements downstream, incurring Kherson, and the potential exists for hundreds of thousands of people to be affected. Such a disaster could also endanger the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which draws on the reservoir at nearby Kharkov for cooling. According to Edwin Lyman, director of nuclear power safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists, quote, There's a definite danger there. It wouldn't necessarily lead to an immediate disaster, but it would be just another massive problem for trying to keep that plant stable. And in a highly controversial story, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, was in Brazil at the headquarters of the Catholic University of Argentina, where, as Director, he inaugurated the International Chair for Sustainable Development, the Common Good, and Peace And then went on to say, quote, It is not a Russian military objective to attack nuclear plants. Oh, yeah? Then who's doing it? If Zaporizhia or any of the other nuclear facilities in Ukraine are hit, the country would be over, and so would much of Europe. Whose interests would that serve? When faced with pushback questions from the press on this very matter, Grossi said, I prefer not to speculate. Remember in all of this that within the International Atomic Energy Agency's bylaws and charter is the mandate to support nuclear reactors and nuclear power. And in another story that is coming to the fore, Russia's nuclear fuel industry remains conspicuously untouched by European sanctions more than seven months into the Kremlin's war in Ukraine. Despite eight rounds of sanctions, shipment of nuclear fuel to the EU member states continues to make their way from Russia. Ariadna Rodrigo, EU Sustainable Finance Manager at the environmental group Greenpeace, told CNBC that it is, quote, absolute madness for the bloc to continue bankrolling the Kremlin by ignoring Russian nuclear trade. For more on that, we hear from Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat, Hot Story.
2: Issues surrounding Russia's war against Ukraine are, of course, complicated. The encroachment of NATO onto Russia's borders clearly provided provocation. But that, of course, does not justify the invasion of an independent nation, nor the subsequent atrocities and human rights abuses that we are now hearing about daily. It also does not justify the level of hypocrisy coming from NATO countries, who, on the one hand, decry the war, and on the other hand, continue to fuel it by, well, purchasing fuel, most specifically, uranium fuel for the nuclear power sector. Despite noises about embargoes on Russian energy supplies and concerns about winter fuel shortages, the US and European Union countries are feeling no qualms about their continued importation of Russian raw uranium and reactor fuel. The profits from those sales continue to enrich Rosatom, the Russian government nuclear enterprise, which is now the world's major exporter of nuclear reactors and fuel. It comes as a bit of a surprise, therefore, that at least one U.S. corporation looking to build so-called advanced small modular reactors, known as SMRs, has actually had a bit of a prick of its conscience when it comes to Russia. With the exception of the new scale reactor design, which is based on the traditional light water reactor, all the American SMRs on the drawing board would use high assay, low enriched uranium fuel, something only produced by Russia. We didn't have a fuel problem until a few months ago, Jeff Nabin, director of external affairs for the Bill Gates owned company TerraPower told Reuters, after the invasion of Ukraine, we were not comfortable doing business with Russia. TerraPower's Natrium design is one of the reactors requiring HALU fuel. The low enriched in the HALU name is misleading as the uranium is actually enriched to close to 20%, which borders on weapons usable. The Inflation Reduction Act, US President Joe Biden signed in August, contains $700 million to secure HALU supplies from the government and a consortium partnered with the US Department of Energy for use in advanced reactors and research but domestic production of HALU fuel is not straightforward and developing it will put a significant delay on the US SMR program. The reactors that would require HALU have already been flagged as proliferation risky. One reason is that the companies making these reactors have signaled their clear interest in the export market. And that puts very effective plutonium making equipment into the hands of countries that could easily use these reactors to manufacture nuclear weapons instead. It's exactly why alarm bells have been raised about Iran's uranium enrichment program. Just to make the weapons connection even clearer, the U.S. government is considering downblending surplus weapons-grade uranium enriched to 90% U-235 or higher to use as HALU fuel. but this would also take time. The HALU problem could go away overnight, of course. Cancel the SMR program. No advanced SMRs equals no HALU and the world will be a slightly safer place as a result. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat, and that's this week's hot story.
0: We will have links up to several stories about the situation in Ukraine, including how not to estimate the likelihood of nuclear war from the Brookings Institute. Rhetoric in Ukraine has reinforced the fallacy of limited nuclear exchange from thebulletin.org. And from Russian journalist Zakhar Popovich, writing in, writing in the Moscow Times, will be Zaporizhia on the brink. How deteriorating conditions at the nuclear power plant could lead to disaster. A little light reading for the Halloween season, because if the usual spooks and specters don't scare you, this stuff surely will. Here in the U.S., at the Hanford site in southeast Washington state, The world's largest radioactive waste melter was halted because it was overheating. The world's largest radioactive waste melter at the Hanford site vitrification plant was not expected to be turned off over the next five years to avoid damaging melter components. The plan was to run it continuously. But this week, instead of it rising to its planned 2100 degrees Fahrenheit over the next two weeks, The unit was halted before 300 degrees was reached. Troubleshooting is now being done on the electrical system. Construction of the vitrification site began 20 years ago at the waste treatment plant. The Hanford nuclear site was used during World War II. They built the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. And during the Cold War, it produced nearly two-thirds of the plutonium for the nation's nuclear weapons program. It is now considered to be the most contaminated site in the Western Hemisphere. As for nuclear reliability, put that in quotes, the following all come from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. On October 18, at Browns Ferry 3 in Alabama, the standby liquid control system was found to be inoperable. This is the system that is needed to scram, meaning institute an emergency shutdown, in the event that its control rods do not insert. The system was fixed in six hours, but if it had gone two hours more, the reactor would have had to be shut down. Workers at the Grand Gulf Nuclear Plant in Mississippi accidentally caused a loss of secondary containment pressure while conducting a surveillance test while the reactor was at full power. It took nearly an hour to restore operability of the secondary containment. And the NRC has documented multiple security violations at the Surrey Nuclear Plant in Virginia, with cross-cutting aspects related to the complacency and failure to adhere to procedures. Just follow the rules, guys. Follow the rules. And now, for a bit more nuclear boneheadedness...
2: Nuclear
0: hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission sent out a tweet with an astonishing announcement that they were so proud of. Now, they are on Instagram. Yes, another social media platform has been harnessed for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to continue to support the nuclear industry. It's part of their charter, in case you didn't know. And, of course, it's a breathless breakthrough in their ongoing fight to convince all of us that nukes are really safe and that they are really doing their job to protect people and the environment. Really, really? Yeah, right. And that's why, NRC, you are once again this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, None That's Out of the Week. In Japan, at the still radioactive rubble and debris that constitutes the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The method to remove debris that is currently being proposed, meaning by submerging the buildings in water, has been labeled by experts, the first of its kind in the world, technically quite difficult, and even the experts are not confident. While submerging the building in water will shield workers from radiation thereby increasing the safety of the work it is expected to generate about 150,000 tons of highly contaminated water that has come in contact with the debris this is equal to about 150 tanks storing treated water on the site and the risk of a leakage accident is immeasurable there are other problems too and we will link to this article restart of the takahama unit 4 reactor which is currently shut down for routine inspection because of rising temperatures in the reactor containment vessel that is activated when there is a problem with the primary cooling system. No word on when it's supposed to be restarted. The Pacific Island Forum continues to object to Japan's proposal to dispose of its radioactive tritium-contaminated water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean. The forum's Secretary General, Henry Puna, says they've asked for an audience with the Prime Minister of Japan to raise concerns about this issue and say there's a possibility they would meet after COP27 towards the end of November. And a reported magnitude 5 earthquake off the coast of Fukushima has reportedly caused no issue at nearby nuclear plants. In Germany, where five days after Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg broke ranks with the German Green Party and urged the country not to shut down its remaining nuclear power plants, Chancellor Olaf Scholz announced on Monday that the country would do just that and extend the lifetime of its three remaining facilities, at least until mid-April. Thanks, Greta, for your overriding concern for people and the environment, as long as it doesn't impinge on nuclear. In Finland... Damage has been detected in the internals of the feed water pumps at the Kyoto 3 nuclear reactor. The Belgian Coalition Against Nuclear Weapons demonstrated outside of NATO's headquarters in Brussels over the military nuclear exercise that is taking place on Belgian territory. And the UK's Trident nuclear workers are voting on strikes over pay. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, hey everybody! Pay attention, please. Every week, I take two minutes in the middle of Nuclear Hot Seat to let you know why it's important to have a weekly, concise rundown on what's happening in nuclear around the world and to ask for your support, financial support. In the past, this has helped make the show self sustaining from your contributions, with a special shout out to those of you who have made monthly sustaining donations. That's what I've come to depend on to cover the ongoing monthly costs of website hosting, services to handle storage, distribution, recording, computer repairs, the URL. There's a whole list beyond that. In the past, I've been able to squeak by with the help of an occasional one-time donation that puts us over the top for a specific month. But in the past several months, what has come in has not covered what's been going out. The rest has to come from my pocket. And to be honest, I don't have a pocket. That's leading me to do some hard thinking about the long-term sustainability of Nuclear Hot Seat. But before I do anything drastic, I want to find out, is this show important to you? Are you willing to help us through this difficult time? I know the economy has been bad for all of us, and all the work that I do to put this show together is completely unpaid. All monies donated go directly to supporting the show. So if you can, please donate now. Any amount, even $5 will help. And if you can make it a monthly $5, that would be swell. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's a red Donate button there. Click on it and follow the prompts. And if you prefer to donate offline, email me at info at NuclearHotSeat.com. I will send you a mailing address. But whatever you do, please, let's keep this valuable resource going. Thanks for your support. And thanks for caring. Now here's this week's featured interview. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is the group that, every year, sets the doomsday clock to let us know how close humanity is to utterly destroying itself. We are currently at 100 seconds to endgame, and that was set long before Russia invaded Ukraine. Still, this is the closest we have ever been. So what and who are behind this harbinger of doom. That's why I talked with Rachel Bronson. She is President and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and she helps us learn about the organization, its mission, and that darn clock. Note that this interview was recorded in March of 2018, when the Doomsday Clock was set at 2 minutes to midnight, and she refers to this during the course of the interview. It is currently at 100 seconds to midnight, the closest it has ever been, but this was set long before Russia invaded Ukraine and our past eight months of nuclear dangers. Many would argue that the clock should be much closer to midnight now. We'll bring you up to date on where we stand after the interview. Rachel Bronson, it is so good to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Let's start out with an explanation of what exactly the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is?
1: So the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists is a 70-year-old organization located in Chicago on the campus of the University of Chicago. And what we do is we publish a journal and a website that is updated daily that focuses on existential risk. What we're really interested in is science and technology and that those advancements and how to make sure that they are used for the benefit of mankind and we protect ourselves against the risks they bring.
0: When was the Bulletin founded, by whom, and what was their motivation? The
1: Bulletin of Atomic Scientists was founded in 1945 by Manhattan Project scientists, many of them who had worked with Fermi. Uh, on the first sustained nuclear chain reaction here at the University of Chicago. Some of them went off to Los Alamos, some stayed here, but they were all involved in the science of the time. They were also very aware because of that, that the world as they knew it had changed and that weapons had the potential to wipe out large numbers of people and they could see at the time had the potential to really end life on Earth as we know it. And so they came together in the beginning, and we can talk about that, but their origins were here in Chicago in 1945.
0: There were several references on the website to the fact that the Manhattan Project scientists felt that they could not remain aloof to the consequences of their work. And then they put forth both technical and humanist arguments for the abolition of nuclear weapons tell us about what was behind their push and what were the emotions that were perhaps involved that motivated them well, it was a really fascinating time the
1: scientists who were working here you know had been at it in 1942 they had worked with fermi they understood that the their scientific breakthroughs around um, the atom could be weaponized and it moved that process moved to los alamos but they were very active here and very concerned about what the politics of managing it would be. And they became increasingly concerned when it seemed that the bomb would be used, that it would be used against Japan and not Germany, that it would be dropped potentially on civilian populations, not as a demonstration effect, um, all those things. And so they came together very soon after, if you if you think of the timing of this in July of 1945, we got the first atomic bomb tests here in the United States. And by August of 1945, the United States drops two nuclear weapons or atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. By November of 1945, so just a few months later, three months later, the scientists who had been talking about these issues. Scientists like Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer, and Albert Einstein, but also the folks here working, um, they get together and they create a six-page black and white bulletin called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists of Chicago to engage the public. The politics as we know it has changed, and we must all get involved. And so um, they come together and write that. But just to add to this, it was an incredible fertile time here in Chicago, so even just at the university, you had not only these world-renowned scientists, but you had Hans Morgenthau, who was a globally recognized political scientist. You had Edward Levy, a world-class international lawyer. President Hutchins was running the university, was very concerned about the ramifications of the science that was advanced here at the university. And so it was a very dynamic time, and they each complemented each other, and the bulletin of atomic scientists was then, they had the benefit of Eugene Rabinowitch, who becomes the first editor who's here, and he's a Russian emigre who is a beautiful writer and a scientist himself, and he's able to translate what they're working on into prose that really captivate the public imagination.
0: So the bulletin started out as a physical publication that was then sent out where? To subscribers, to other scientists, to politicians? Where did it go? Yes, to all of the
1: above. They were very focused on Washington, and so they sent it to Washington to policymakers, but they had strong connections internationally they sent it to their friends internationally but the real focus was here on the United States because it was the United States that had the bomb and so they sent it through their networks and it very quickly became a subscription and so within two years they realized this bulletin which was again just black and white type stapled together I'm looking right now at the first page of the first copy by 1947 they decided it's time to turn it into a magazine something a little weightier to respond to the demand. And in turning it into a magazine, they needed a cover. And the first cover of the first journal was the Doomsday Clock. So by 1947, the first magazine comes out and the cover is the Doomsday Clock.
0: Now, was the Doomsday Clock invented or conceived or the image created just for the cover? Or did it pre-exist being put on the cover. I'm wondering who came up with that thought and how did it get implemented? Yeah,
1: great question. So one of the scientists, Alexander Langsdorff, who was a physicist here, his wife was Martil Langsdorff, who was a well-known oil landscape painter. And he turned to her to create the first cover because they had no money. You know, this was just a bootstrap operation. And so she, as an artist, began contemplating what could she put as a cover that they could recreate easily, but conveyed the urgency and the seriousness of purpose that she knew her husband and her friends felt, that she herself felt about this science and, and these weapons. And so she had considered a sign of uranium. She had considered some other things, but she came up with this idea of the clock because of um, the urgency it conveyed the fact that it was ticking the fact that it required action and this was also during a time you know it was just after the war with countdowns and you know 1098 and, and all of that that really kind of spoke to people and so there's an interview with her where someone asked why did you set it where you did? Because the first cover, it was set at seven minutes to midnight. And she, somewhat off the cuff, says, Well, you know, it was pleasing to my eye. In other interviews I've seen, she talks about the fact that it was pleasing to her eye, but it also, because it conveyed an urgency, it was far enough away from midnight that we still had a chance to intervene, but close enough that it really demanded our attention. So it was created for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists for its journal.
0: Once that image was out in the world, what was the response with it and how was the decision made or how quickly was the decision made to make this at minimum a yearly icon to revisit and perhaps reset?
1: Yeah, so it was set at seven minutes to midnight or it was put at seven minutes to midnight and and there it, it stayed. And then in 1949, two years later, As a result of the Russians testing their own atomic bomb, the editor of the bulletin, Gene Rabinowicz, moved the clock. And suddenly by 1949, you had a static graphic representation become dynamic. And by 1953, it moved to two minutes to midnight, which is the closest it's ever been to midnight until now. He moved it in 1953 as a result of the Americans, then also the Russians, testing hydrogen bombs. The Americans do it in 1952, the Russians do it in 1953. And in response to both of those tests, he moves it to two minutes to midnight. And the clock has moved since. It's moved as close to two minutes to midnight and as far away as 17 minutes to midnight. So it had been left to the editor to do, and it was kind of his decision. And he was the one who moved it. When he passed away, the board, the science and security board took it over and then they moved it. And again, you can see on our website, we have the full list of how it's moved and they would meet regularly. I don't know when it started to become yearly. I don't know if it's always been yearly, but it's been certainly yearly recently, but they would meet and they would discuss and they would set the time.
0: What are some of the criteria that are used for determining, okay, it's closer, okay, we can move it away?
1: There's a few things that are worth talking about it. First of all, what issues do we focus on? And then how do we set it? And so what are the issues? Let me start with where they started. It had always been moved as a result of the nuclear landscape. So it was created out of a fear of nuclear weapons and their use. But even at the founding of the Bulletin, the editor, Gene Rabinowicz, when asked what's the purpose of the Bulletin, he gives two, re- two goals. The first is to eliminate nuclear weapons, and the second is to manage Pandora's box of modern science. And I just find that managing Pandora's box of modern science so fascinating because of the use of modern in the sense that they understood, the scientists of the time, that the science that they knew uh, was changing and changing fast. And it was going to cause, we had to rethink so many things. And so Einstein has this beautiful quote, and I'll butcher it, so I'm pa- paraphrasing it badly. But it's that you know everything has changed except the way we think. And so they knew that science is going to demand, the scientific advancement was going to demand really kind of new thoughts. So Pandora's box of modern science. And if you look in the early days of the Bulletin, its journals, there's a lot of focus on nuclear weapons, of course. But there's also early discussions of climate change and uh, what does it mean. We had a, it's just quite interesting—a cover story in the '70s where the Bulletin's editors take a stand that man is indeed responsible for the change in climate. There's things in there about how the mind works, um, population growth because of technological advancements, and it's a fascinating tour through kind of science and policy and where they come together um, in our archives. But the clock had been set, and again, it's on on the website with a real focus on. Breakthroughs as well as obstacles in reducing nuclear risk. In 2009, climate change is added to it, and it becomes probably one of the most controversial decisions that the board takes to start including things other than nuclear weapons. And it's controversial for probably pretty obvious reasons, which is you know different time horizons and different issues at stake, and how can you put them all into the same calculation. And so the challenge that the board was focused on is what is this clock about? Is it about nuclear risk or is it about two questions that we ask ourselves every time we meet? Is humanity safer or at greater risk this year than it was last year? And is humanity safer or at greater risk today compared to the other times that we've asked that question? And you can't answer those questions unless you include climate change, the board felt, as well as other disruptive technologies. And so in 2009, uh, the board includes climate change for the first time.
0: We are now at two minutes to midnight, down from two and a half minutes last year. What was the motivation for moving it that much closer to the midnight of annihilation? It's been
1: quite fascinating to look at how the clock's been moving. And when I look back in the recent years, to best understand the current move, I think the the most significant jump recently was in 2015 when we moved from five to three minutes to midnight. And so if I can start there, it'll help make sense of why we moved it, why we're at two minutes now. In 2015, And all these statements are on the website. In 2015, the board made a very big move. And they moved it two minutes, which itself is the big move, but it's also a big move given how close to midnight the clock stood at five. So from five to three. And why'd they do that? They called out three issues that continue to vex us all today. And it's actually quite relevant when you have um, Vladimir Putin today saying that some of his reactions and the creation of new weapons as a result of actions taken, and he points back to 2001. So a lot of this is seeds that have been planted over the last decade plus. But in 2015, we moved it from five to three for a number of reasons, but we highlighted three in particular. The first was a real deterioration in U.S.-Russian relations. the United States and the Russians maintain more than 90 percent of the world's nuclear arsenal. And so when relations between the two of them are not good, it makes us the whole world less safe. And so the board was very concerned about the deterioration in the relations, the violations that they saw certainly on the Russian side, but also the U.S. side, and their concern about the increasing lack of back channels and possible ways to have serious negotiations. The second thing that they highlighted was huge investments that were being allocated towards nuclear weapons that appeared to be not just ensuring the efficiency or the safety and reliability of the weapons but seemed to be creating new kinds of weapons and in fact making them more usable. And so if you look across the globe at countries like India and Pakistan in particular, Pakistan has the globe's fastest growing nuclear arsenal. If you look at the kinds of investments the Chinese are making, how they're outfitting their subs, their submarines, and what they're investing in terms of their own capacity, it was quite worrisome. If you looked at the United States, For President Obama to get through the New START Treaty in 2010, uh, he had to promise Congress to make a huge investment, the equivalent of $1.2 trillion in not only what our board thought was kind of, again, ensuring that they're safe and reliable. Well, we all know some investments have to go there, but really in making new kinds of investments. And so there was a great concern about where that was taking us. And the final thing in that 2015 statement that they called out and very loudly was the fact that there was no global institution or forum or set of agreements to do anything to reduce climate change. And that our climate scientists on our board were saying that we had to do things now to reduce the amount of carbon being put into our atmosphere. Otherwise, it would be too late in the future. And we weren't seeing a global response to this global problem. And that's the background in many ways to where we find ourselves today. In 2016, the board came back together and they kept the time at three minutes to midnight with a report called, It is Still Three Minutes to Midnight, And they still referenced the things that we had talked about the year before, but they pointed to two bright spots that they thought had the potential to move the clock away from midnight. They highlighted the Iran deal, the JCPOA, Joint Comprehension Plan of Action, which uh, our board and scientists felt very strongly was a deal that would, in fact, help reduce the nuclear threat and paris climate accords were coming we could see them we had outlines of what would be agreed to more needed to be done but the board did feel that paris had the potential to provide a for a global forum to put restrictions in place that would help slow the introduction of carbon into the atmosphere and so in 2016 it was at 3 minutes to midnight in 2017 the board i think was eager to come back together and thinking that they might move the clock hands back because of those two factors. But of course, 2016 leading up to the 17th setting was very different. And that's when we moved it from three to two and a half minutes to midnight. At that point, we had just gone through an election where the president-elect at points didn't seem to know what the nuclear triad was, as importantly, was making very troubling statements such as, well, if they, meaning the Russians, want an arms race, we'll give them an arms race, and about our allies, Japan and South Korea, you know, maybe they should, uh, we should encourage them to buy their own nuclear weapons, and on and on. And so we were very concerned with that. We were very concerned with what we saw as reckless language around the use of nuclear weapons, both in the United States and elsewhere, in December of 2016, the Pakistani foreign minister or defense minister, I can't remember which one, issued a threat, uh, a nuclear threat against the Israelis in a response to a fake news story he saw on Twitter. So very reckless language being used and a real disparagement of expertise globally. So in the United States, we are very concerned of things the president-elect had been saying about climate science, but in the rest of the world, the board has focused on things like Brexit, where expertise was being denounced, where it was much needed. And so our 2017 statement really focused on a disregard for science and a recklessness around language, around nuclear diplomacy that we felt was very dangerous. We moved it a half a minute And then this past year, we kind of finished the minute and moved it to two minutes to midnight as a result of real advancements that the North Koreans were making in terms of their missile programs, both their range and capabilities. All the same things that we were seeing in 2015 were being accelerated. And we also made the statement that we moved it largely for reasons of the nuclear landscape, whereas in other years, we had kind of spent as much time on climate, thinking about emerging technologies as well as the nuclear landscape.
0: It's so much information and so much debate and examination of facts that goes into this very elegantly designed symbol that we don't necessarily have to know every jot and tittle of what you go through to come there, but the image itself is so powerful and represents so much thought. How influential do you feel the Doomsday Clock announcement has been, beyond the fact that it always piques the interest of the media? Do you think it does anything to coalesce thinking either in governments or in influential individuals?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that it's influential, first of all, across the globe, but then also among decision makers. You know, what I can share with you is this past year, we know it was certainly here in the United States, it was covered by the media and every major media outlet. We know 275,000 people came within a couple of weeks to read the statement, half from the United States, half from outside the United States. We know anecdotally, um, the South Korean consul general came to see me because he was told to come see me to kind of talk about the statement, to fully understand it. From friends in Australia, they saw it everywhere. So the global reach of the clock is pretty significant. Now you're asking something a little different. Who does it influence and how does it influence? I'll tell you what I find most important and gratifying is not the policymakers, and I'll get to them in a second because they're watching this too, but the public. These issues that we focus on existential threat, are really hard to talk about. And they feel really technical and really big and really unsolvable. And it's hard to know sitting around a dinner conversation how to talk about them. And yet, when the time of the doomsday clock is announced, it stops the news cycle. And it gives people entree into the conversation of did you see that they said it at two minutes to midnight? You know, I assume it's prompting conversations. We see some of it of, I think it should be closer. I think it should be farther away. I think that it shouldn't just be about nuclear risk and climate change. It should also include these other things. I think it should only include nuclear risk. It gives entree into a set of conversations that seem daunting and impossible to access. So that's the part that I find most breathtaking every time it's announced. You know, we see it from popular culture all the way up through policy circles. So you asked about policy circles. In the United States, we'll get calls from congressmen we haven't met before or others say, I'm very interested in these issues, come talk to us. That happened this year. We've seen at the United Nations the clock is an easy but effective way to organize disarmament conferences. We saw just recently in Munich, it's, it referenced that we have to do something. The doomsday clock is at two minutes to midnight. And so it's a way of sharing in a sense of urgency without sounding, quite frankly, hysterical that it is urgent, it is dangerous, and who's ever talking about it at the time agrees with it. And look, the bulletin had set it at two minutes to midnight, and, and, and. What I find most interesting is the general public and the artists. So we know it comes into pop songs. We know it organizes television shows. And it just, again, gives people the ability to engage on these tough topics.
0: It really is a brilliant symbol. But it's not the only thing. That the Bulletin is involved in. Tell us about some of the other programs and initiatives that you're putting forward.
1: Yeah, thank you. You know, I really uh, hope that some of those listening come check out our website at thebulletin.org. We are constantly publishing some of the best works on nuclear risk, climate change, and disruptive technologies. We think a lot about new technologies, artificial intelligence, and CRISPR, and cybersecurity. We think about pandemics. What are the things and what are the questions we should be asking? So right now, for example, I find artificial intelligence probably the most fascinating. And all of this is built on the sense that Remember, we're created by scientists and we have many within our leadership are writing for us. So these are people who really believe in the advancement of science and that it's gonna do great things and it's gonna pull people out of poverty and it'll increase our quality of life. And we know that we all have so much to benefit from, but it comes with risks. And if we can address the risks now, we will actually be able to leverage the benefits. But if we can't, we're gonna get stuck. So I think the best example of what I'm talking about is in the nuclear landscape. Then I want to come back to artificial intelligence, but nuclear power, nuclear energy. In the United States, 20% of our energy comes from nuclear power. I'm here in Illinois. It's even a slightly higher percentage than that. So we know that in a carbon-constrained environment that we live in, any sort of energy that doesn't emit you know, that, is, that doesn't have a car, that doesn't, uh, that isn't a fossil fuel, is we should be trying to figure out how to accelerate and enhance. And nuclear power is one of the cleanest, is the cleanest source of baseload power available.
0: Well, that's um, the, that, of course, is ignoring the fact that it creates nuclear waste that has a half-life of 24,000 years.
1: That's right, right, right. So, um, and that's exactly my point. So we know in a carbon constrained environment, um, nuclear power should be something that we should embrace. However, we haven't been able to manage its risks. And what are those risks? One is proliferation and how do you protect it? Um, And the other, and I think probably the most important, is the one you just, and the second one is safety. Of course, we've all just lived through uh, Fukushima. And the third one is, what do you do with the waste? Your point exactly. Um, And so we haven't managed the risks of nuclear power, which means there is very limited appetite in uh, the United States and Europe in moving forward with nuclear power. If we were able to figure out how to do that, um, we would have a clean source of energy. And so if you can't manage the risks, you also often can't Um, Accrue the benefits, and so those are the kinds of issues that we care about. So, how does this fit to artificial intelligence, where I started? Now, artificial intelligence—if it's about driverless cars—we think that's kind of cool and interesting, but it's really not our topic. The question is: Do humans end up losing the narrative in a hundred years, where machines are making decisions that humans used to, and we think as the core of humans? What does that mean for our safety and security? Then we start getting really interested in it. We start grappling with, if artificial intelligence is going to result in the loss of millions of jobs worldwide to lead to massive instability, that's probably an issue that we want to start thinking about now. And how do we manage a future like that that's coming? How serious do we think it is? And many of our scientists on our board thinks it's pretty likely. So how do we frame the questions? What part of which technologies do we care about? One scientist and a politician who we've been talking to, what happens with CRISPR if in other countries they start genetically engineering people who don't need to sleep? Is that possible? What does that mean in terms of civilization's advancement? How do we think about that? What is the likelihood? is there any, you know, what are the kind of ethical questions might that raise? What if others don't pay attention to those ethics? Those are the kinds of questions that we do think about and work on and publish on our website. You know, we do things like hold conferences. We just had a conference at Arizona State University where we were looking at artificial intelligence on the battlefield and what it meant. And we had people who were from deep within industry who were raising concerns. So those are the kinds of conversations we like to generate. Those are then kinds of articles we like to publish and give talks on and engage others who are working on it.
0: I don't think I had ever been to your website before I was doing my research for this interview. And I found the depth and complexity of the articles there to be refreshing because they weren't based in hysteria. They were based in science and they seemed very well reasoned whether I agreed with them or not. That level of discourse is rare. A core thought that I want to get to A few weeks ago on Nuclear Hot Seat 349, I interviewed Sean Bonner of SafeCast, which is a nonprofit that helps citizen scientists around the world to build their own radiation monitors, and then their data feeds directly into a free database that SafeCast makes available to everyone. And he was very clear about the point that SafeCast was neither pro-nuclear nor anti-nuclear. It was pro-data. Using that as kind of a guiding paradigm, what would you say about the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists? Pro, anti, or somewhere else? Well,
1: I think we're absolutely based, we're built on evidence based reasoning and arguments. And so for us, it's about evidence, and often that correlates with data. And so I think for us, what we like to think about, what the Bulletin is really about is where does science and policy come together? It's interesting because often we're critiqued as being almost alarmist right, about the science and danger, 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 and threats, threats, threats. And that's why I started where I did in some ways, which is we're created by scientists who were part and parcel of the advancement of science, who had devoted their life to science. But they also saw the fact that science unrestrained can lead to terrible outcomes. They had all seen World War II and where science advancements, whether it was in the nuclear bombs or whether it was in gas chambers, could bring huge destruction, terrible suffering. They understood that. And so that's why they were trying to figure out how to engage the public to help build better policies to keep us safe. In the nuclear realm, it was how to engage the Russians and others. Was it debates on should we give them our technology? Should we be transparent? Should we not? They were very much for sharing of technology. It was their belief that science diffuses and that trying to keep it within the confines of a nation was parochial, and it would only lead to suspicion, and it would only lead to arms races. The politicians often felt the opposite. Why would you possibly let your adversaries see your technologies? And so for us, it's really about what we get really interested in is where is the science going and what policy should we put in place to keep us safe? So it's not data or pro-data. Bulletin of atomic scientists, they work in data. We work in data. We publish on it. But it's evidence-based, and it's really about that intersection of public policy and scientific advancement.
0: What do you say to people who accuse the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists as being a bunch of fear mongers?
1: Well, I certainly hear that, and I think it's a fair question. First of all, if we didn't believe it was as dangerous as it was, then that accusation would be out there. But for years, the Bulletin has been saying it has been getting dangerous, more and more dangerous. And I think the public is kind of catching up to that now. And so now when we move the clock, We hear as often as, why didn't you move it closer than, why didn't you move it further away? But what I think about in all this is the bulletin's job at this moment, especially when people are rightfully worried about the state of things, is twofold, which is we provide a place where people can see and read through some of the best thinking on these issues. And so it's not like nobody's thinking about these issues, and it's not like there aren't ideas out there on how to make it better and so we feel that we're doing something very useful during these times to provide that respite for people to come and see what's happening and see what people are thinking about and come up with ways to get engaged and then the second on this is if they can do that they themselves will be smarter activists and that is going to be what's going to keep us safe is politicians respond to public pressure and that is true all over the world. And so if public is not engaged, then there's very little incentive to make hard decisions. And some of those hard decisions right now are to try to find a way back to the negotiating tables between the Russians and the Americans to figure out how diplomatically elsewhere in the world we, the U.S. and the North Koreans and the Chinese are gonna figure out the Korean Peninsula security situation And so we need an engaged public because it's only that that's going to keep policymakers' feet to the fire to try to push those hands of the doomsday clock away from midnight.
0: The work that you and the Bulletin are doing is, I think, crucial to us understanding the nature of the issues, no matter what our bias happens to be. And you've done a great job explaining that today. My mind is exploding now on a couple of levels of things that I didn't know. And I want to thank you, Rachel Bronson, for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. That was Rachel Bronson, president and CEO of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. If you want to receive their newsletter, and I suggest that you do, go to their website, thebulletin.org. A pop-up when you get to the site will allow you to sign up for weekly bulletins from The Bulletin. That interview was recorded in March of 2018. In 2019, the clock was set at 2 minutes to midnight. Then in 2020, the doomsday clock was moved to 100 seconds to midnight, where it has remained in 2021 and 2022. But this year's setting was made before Russia invaded Ukraine with the ensuing nuclear threats between Russia, NATO, and the United States, as well as the ongoing dangers on the ground at the Zaporizhia Nuclear Power Facility, with its six nuclear reactors at risk from shelling, and now possible loss of cooling water if the nearby dam that provides the reservoir is in any way compromised by the ongoing fighting. Many of us in this community, this podcast host included, have reached out to the Bulletin about resetting the time on the doomsday clock to reflect this latest alarming set of developments. However, they are adamant that they reset the clock in January, so let's hope we all survive until then to see how close they deem us to annihilation. We will have a link up on the website to a recent article from the Bulletin entitled Nowhere to Hide – How a Nuclear War Would Kill You and Almost Everyone Else. You'll find it at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 592.
2: Activists. Activists, shout out, shout out, shout out.
0: Peace Action New York State is holding a Zoominar on Rethinking Warfare Economies. The featured speaker will be author Miriam Pemberton a research fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies who has studied the U.S. military economy and its conversion to peaceful production for decades. It will be held on Thursday, November 17, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be on Zoom. And we'll have a link up to where you can register for it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 592. And a heads up that on next week's show number 593, I will be featuring an extended interview with Dr. Helen Caldicott. She is coming out of, if not retirement, certainly a stepping back from the front lines of nuclear activity, to remind us of the Academy Award-winning documentary that focused on her work, If You Love This Planet. It's available on YouTube, and we will also have links up to it next week. But you're not going to want to miss this interview on the woman who has done it better for longer than just about all of us. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. Our thanks as always to Linda Pence-Gunter for her weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. So there you have it, your nuclear wake-up call. Just don't go back to sleep because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: One minute to midnight, one minute to go, one minute to say goodbye before we...